Good afternoon. It's good to be back with you after being away last week. Um, it was such a beautiful day last Sabbath, and um, driving out to Gippsland, and um, yeah, it was such a such a nice drive. Actually, um, it was it was actually nice to go out of the Greater Melbourne area and see all the greenery um, and the beautiful country Victoria. Twenty years ago, I had the privilege of attending Princeton University, which is a liberal arts university in the U.S. And liberal arts. This, U.S. universities are different than here in that here you have to decide, I think, pretty early on before you even get to uni, kind of the career that you want to do, and then you go and you specialize in that field. Whereas in the U.S., it's a bit different um, in that you go to liberal arts universities where you are required for the first two years to take a diversity of subjects um, across different fields and not just in the ones that you're interested in for your career. And so in addition to studying uh, French literature, which was actually my declared major, I took classes such as intro to psychology, Christian ethics and modern society, animal behavior, culture and politics, inequality, class, race, and gender, structure and the urban environment, and even a class called engineering ice cream, which sadly was less about ice cream and more about thermodynamics. <laughs> my professors were eminent scholars and Nobel Prize laureates, some of, whom were, some of whom were Christian some of whom were not. But my time at Princeton um, interacting with intellectual giants affirmed that it is actually possible to be an intellectual and to think critically and deeply and widely and still believe in a God, a good God. The classes were very interesting. Um, I'm just going to... Oh. There we go. The classes were very interesting, but the offering that were outside of the classroom were really, um, I think, what, what, what made my university experience um, rich, such as forums on interfaith conversations between leaders of major world religions, debates on campus between Professor Cornell West, who was in the Matrix movie, by the way, <laughs> random fact, and, and Professor Peter Singer about euthanasia. Now, Professor Peter Singer is actually from Melbourne, and he was the first Australian that I met. Um, he was born in Melbourne and taught at Monash before moving to Princeton in 1999, sorry, where he's still part of the faculty there. Now, my first day at Princeton was September 11, 2001. And so I was there for very significant conversations, challenging questions conversations about the meaning and the value of life. One such conversation was between Professor Peter Singer and disability rights advocate Harriet McBride Johnson. Now, Professor Singer has written many books, uh, but some of the most influential, the ones that he's best known for, um, are his books on animal liberation and his book called The Life You Can Save, about um, the most effective way to do philanthropy. Now, as an atheist, Pastor Peter, uh, pa Professor, sorry, Professor Peter Singer believes that non-human animals should be given the same moral consideration as human beings, because he believes that humans are just another species out of many species on Earth, and that humans should not be held to a special uh, standard and given special consideration. He also believes that human life and personhood is only valuable when there is consciousness. So, for example, a newborn baby who lacks rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness does not have equal human value to an adult 
And so killing a newborn is not, should not be equivalent to killing an adult who wants to keep on living. It's also a utilitarian who believes that the greatest good for the greatest number and reducing suffering in the most effective manner possible is, should be the goal of humanity. The logical conclusion for Peter Singer is that it is morally permissible and even advisable for parents to make the decision to euthanize newborn children with severe disabilities so that they can save the resources for non-disabled children who have a greater chance at happiness. As you can imagine, his statements have been very controversial. And so a lots, uh, many disability rights groups, um, such as the one that Ms. Harriet Johnson represented, um, were on campus protesting Professor Peter Singer. Now, the conversation between Peter Singer and Harriet Johnson that happened in 2002, my second year there, um, actually it was my first year, second semester there, it was a respectful converse- conversation, but ultimately, the two obviously were unable to find common ground. Their dialogue began before and after this debate, and later on, Ms. Johnson wrote uh, a piece in the New York Times entitled, Unspeakable Conversations, or How I Spent One Day as a Token Cripple at Princeton University. Now, Ms. Johnson herself is an atheist, but she admits She's not a philosopher. So while she denies the existence of God, when Peter Singer asked her the question, why should your life matter more than the life of an animal, she could not explain why. In her article, she concludes, the peculiar drama of my life has placed me in a world that by and large thinks it would be better if people like me did not exist. My fight has been for accommodation, the world to me and me to the world. As a disability pariah, I must struggle for a place, for kinship, for community, for connection. Because I'm still seeking acceptance of my humanity, Singer's call to get past species seems a luxury way beyond my reach. As a shield from the terrible purity of Singer's vision, I'll look to the corruption that comes from interconnectedness. To justify my hopes that Singer's theoretical world and its entirely logical extensions won't become real, I'll invoke the muck and mess and undeniable reality of disabled lives well lived. That's the best I can do. You see, Peter Singer's logical extension that if there is no God, then the survival of the fittest should become public policy did not sit well with Ms. Johnson and I imagine for most of us today. But if there is no God, then why should you matter? Why should vulnerable or marginalized people like Ms. Johnson matter? Why should anyone's life matter? After all, if the Bible isn't true, and we are just one species in the chain of evolution, then why should a human life take precedence over an animal life? Jerry Coyne, a professor of evolution and a a very public critic of religion, he writes this, He says, the universe and life are pointless. Pointless in the sense that there is no externally imposed purpose or point in the universe. As atheists, this is something that is manifestly true to us. There is no special purpose for your life because it is a naturalistic philosophy. We have no more extrinsic purpose than a squirrel or an armadillo. And if he were here in Australia, he would say, than a possum or a kangaroo, right? 
And if you think about it, right, and this is not a thought that we're comfortable with, but if we were to be honest with ourselves and logical, if there is no God, then Professor Jerry Coyne is absolutely right. Why should our lives matter more than a kangaroo? We may matter to a handful of people, our immediate family and friends. But after a few generations, who will remember us? Even if you're a very famous person now, you're Taylor Swift, in 500 years, will her influence still matter? What about 10,000 years from now? Or 100,000 years? Would her life matter? Would our lives matter? If we are here by chance, just one dot in the galaxies, to last for a very short time and die, then what difference do we really hope to make? Professor Coyne, logically then, rejects the idea of free will. He rejects the idea of ethics because there is no morally right or wrong, and how you live doesn't really matter to anyone except for yourself. So Coyne concludes by saying, make your own meaning, do what makes you happy. And that's how a lot of people live today, right? There is no God, my life doesn't really matter to anyone in the grand scheme of things, so I might as well just do whatever I want that makes me happy. But what if what makes you happy makes someone else very unhappy? And what if what makes you happy is taken away? You lose your job. You lose a loved one. A global pandemic shuts down restaurants, sporting events, holidays, things that made you happy. Then what's the point of living? Thomas Nagel, an atheistic philosopher, writes in his article, The Meaning of Life, if you ever ask yourself the question, but what's the point of being alive at all, leading the particular life of a student or a bartender or whatever you happen to be, you'll answer, there is no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all or if I didn't care about anything, but I do. That's all there is to it. Some people find this attitude perfectly satisfying. Others find it depressing, though unavoidable. Part of the problem is that some of us have an incurable tendency to take ourselves seriously. He continues, we want to matter to ourselves from the outside. If our lives as a whole seem pointless, then a part of us is dissatisfied, the part that is always looking over our shoulders at what we are doing. If life is not real, life is not earnest, and the grave is its goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, if we can't help taking ourselves so seriously, perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. Life may be not only meaningless, but absurd. And for Thomas Nagel and others who believe like him, religion is part of that absurdity, right? They think believing in God is part of the ridiculous. I would say that I believe in God not because I want a purpose for my life, but because I believe in God, I have a purpose for my life. And I believe in God partly because I am not satisfied with the logical conclusion that if God does not exist, then our lives are meaningless. The reality that I see and experience personally tells me that human lives do matter, that we are not here by chance, and that we aren't just another species in the evolutionary timeline. For example, 
What Thomas Nagel, Jerry Coyne, and Christopher Hitchens and other modern atheists fail to answer is the question, why? Why do we long for meaning and purpose? Why do we strive? Why not just take the path of least resistance to just survive like animals do, right? Dolphins are brilliant creatures, but they're not pondering the meaning of existence. Why not? Human beings from every culture and history have sought meaning and purpose. We are, as uh, Nagel said, always looking over our shoulders, right? Examining our consciousness, aware of ourselves. Why? Why do we have that kind of awareness? Richard Dawkins, famous for his book, God Delusion, says we shouldn't ask why. During a Q&A that I was watching, uh, when somebody asked the question, how can science give an answer to the question, why are we here? And Dawkins replied, it's not a meaningful question. There are some questions that simply don't deserve an answer. It's a silly question that doesn't deserve an answer. But I beg to differ. I think these are questions that do matter. I think these questions have to be asked and answered. Why are we here? Why do we matter? I think that even if we can't answer these questions fully, that searching for the answers matters deeply. There are so many other important why questions. For example, so many people have suffered horrible things, and yet they believe in God. Why? And I find it interesting that, especially people who, who are suffering all the time in, in countries and areas where they are experiencing extreme hardship, why is it that they can believe in a God more readily than us who have life really relatively good? Why is it that it's hard for us Unexplainable supernatural events have occurred in history and continue to happen around the world today, witnessed by people, and I've witnessed some in my own life. How can we explain the existence of the supernatural? Atheists convert to Christianity after reading the Bible. Why? Victims of atrocities such as the African slaves in colonial America or the First Nations victims of abuse here in Australia, why is it that some of those individuals become Christians when their perpetrators and abusers were Christians. That doesn't make sense. Why, is that, why does that happen? There must be something about the message that is greater than the messenger. Something about reality that rings true for people. Millions of people over centuries who are willing to die for their faith in God. Why? Not asking why leaves us with logical inconsistencies. For example, you might have asked why there is so much suffering in the world. And a lot of people will say that they don't believe in God because there is so much suffering in the world. But I want to poke a little bit of that, what the presumptions and the, and the um, presuppositions, I should say, behind that statement. Why does the suffering bother us so? Why are we saddened by the death of children and the beaching of beautiful whales? Are ants bothered by the deaths of their fellow ants? Are penguins bemoaning the, the fate of human beings? If we're here by chance and natural selection, then suffering and death are normal ingredients of the revolutionary process. 
Why should it bother us? Why should it bother us? Suffering is the norm. Suffering is part of the survival of the fittest, part of natural selection. So why does it bother us so much? Why does injustice outrage us? When bad things happen to good people and good things happen to, be, to, to bad people, why does that make us angry? When people are treated unfairly, why does it upset us? Could it be that the pain in the world and in our own lives be telling us that there is a right and wrong and that we should hold ourselves and each other accountable? Could the pain be telling us that we were meant for wholeness, that we long for a healer? Those who take the time and effort to question and, and, and seek and, and, and discover the answers find within the Bible a framework that answers many of these why questions. And this framework resonates so profoundly and accurately with what we observe and experience in the real world, in our own lives, that that is when we can say, yes, this is the truth. This makes sense. This answers the questions, maybe not fully, but more satisfactorily than any other worldview. So what is that framework? Let me just mention a few. Why are we here? The biblical framework says that God created the world with all the right conditions conducive to life. That we're not just really, really lucky that the atmospheric pressure and the distance from the sun and the right chemical ingredients made Earth the only place in the universe where life can flourish. A few years ago, I shared an, an op-ed piece on ABC News describing how astronauts who went the furthest human being has ever gone in space. There's only 12 people in the entire human history who have gone that far, who have, who have walked on the moon, 400,171 400, kilometers from Earth. These 12 individuals came back, and you think that they would feel pretty special, right? They're part of a very small elite but there were, there are, uh, there's a book um, that's been published called Moondust, and in it, um, the author kind of traces what happened to these 12 men. And what the author discovered is that um, most of them had a huge existential crisis upon returning to Earth. One such astronaut was Charlie Duke, the youngest person to walk on the moon on Apollo 16 mission. After returning to Earth, he couldn't find meaning in life and was deeply unhappy and made everybody around him deeply unhappy. Until six years, exactly six years after his walk on the moon, he walked into a Bible study, and it changed his life forever. And if you scan that QR code and save the link, it's a three-minute um, testimony that he shares um, that you can watch another time. But he wasn't the only one. Charlie Duke and Irwin and others who came back from the, from going to the moon, right? Accomplishing this great human feat still felt empty, still felt like life was meaningless. And they, and they talk about how when they were out in space and they looked back in their, in their, in the space shuttle and saw the earth, how with one thumb they could just cover it and it's gone, right? this tiny little speck in the universe, and yet, right, 
the question of, do our lives matter? And, and, and how is it that this one little dot in the universe is the only place where life has been discovered? And so these astronauts um, have become Christians, many out of the 12, um, in, and that it's through their uh, belief in God that they have found meaning and purpose and a reality that resonates with what they have experienced. Why do our lives matter when we are just a speck in the universe? The biblical framework says, yes, our lives matter, that human beings and other living creatures are not products of gene mutation and natural selection and evolution from primitive self-replicating cell-like structures whose origins are actually unknown, but that God created living things according to their kind, to multiply according to their kind, and that he created human beings in his image. And where's the evidence for that? Last year I preached about peregrine falcons and intelligent design. So I don't want to go too much into it today, but I will recommend a book to you called Darwin, uh, Darwin Devolves by, by biochemist Michael Behe. This was published in 2019, and he talks about the science supporting creationism. Microbiologist Dr. Kevin Anderson said, as a scientist, I am a creationist, not because of what remains unknown, but because of what we do know. Creation provides the best explanation for the existence of sophisticated biological systems. Nature has never been shown to have the necessary power of creation, and there is no reason to assume it ever will be shown to have such capability. Life only comes from life. Any other claim is unscientific dogma. You see, despite all the right physical matter and all the right atoms, inanimate things cannot become animal things on their own. Right? Science cannot resurrect the dead. Cloning can replicate an animal's DNA, but it still requires a living surrogate mother for that embryo to come to term and become a living thing. Why hasn't anyone cloned a human being yet? Two reasons. One, human cloning is actually very difficult because of the way that the, the, the human cells, the chromosomes, um, where they are within the cell. And two, there's reluctance, even in the scientific community, to infringe on values of human dignity and identity. And again, I would ask, why? Why is it okay to clone a sheep but not a human being? Why do scientists still value human dignity and autonomy? Could it be that the biblical framework of the sanctity of human life resonates still even for the scientific community? Why is there suffering? The biblical framework says that suffering, including the suffering of creatures and the earth, is because earth is a battlefield. It's a battlefield where morality and justice are being simultaneously championed and opposed by every single one of us. You see, on the, on the one hand, we strive to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with our God. But on the other hand, we do selfish things that hurt other people, creatures, and destroy the earth. So in order to end suffering, right, we say, well, if there is a God, why doesn't he just end the suffering? Well, to end suffering, God would have to wipe out all humanity, 
Because the truth is, each one of us causes suffering, whether we mean to or not. I drove here today, and my carbon footprint is contributing to global um, warming, which leads to famine and drought and other catastrophic natural disasters around the world that cause suffering. I may not be malicious, but my actions and my words hurt people, especially those closest to me. People around the world suffer because of my apathy. My takeaway meal last week, if donated to charity, could have fed 50 people. So whether we mean to or not, right, our choices, every single one of our choices, they contribute to the suffering in the world or alleviate the suffering in the world. So there's a dilemma that God has, right? Because if he ends suffering, he has to then wipe out all of humanity because there is no one who is purely good and also no one who is purely evil. We are all capable of both extreme good and extreme evil. And so that's the biblical framework. And when I look around the reality that I see and the reality that I recognize in myself, this resonates with me. That, yeah, all of us are a battlefield. We are all contributors and detractors of the suffering in the world. So for God to end suffering without wiping out all human beings, he has to provide a way for people to choose justice, mercy, and humility. And to give us time to recognize the result of suffering, what causes it, and to choose to want to not keep doing it. That means suffering continues for as long as there's a chance for someone to repent and change their ways. But of course, God can't wait forever because victims need justice. And the Bible says that God took on suffering by sacrificing himself on the cross and fulfilling justice in our place, and that all who are willing to choose God and his principles of justice, mercy, and humility are then deemed safe members of a future community where there will be no more suffering. And all those who reject God are then destined to face their own fate, a universal judgment day when Jesus returns to make things whole, a new earth with the resurrected humanity where there is no more pain, no more chaos. And until then, the biblical framework says that God is calling people to participate in his work of healing and redemption. And that's what Christians have been doing over the millennia. Believe in God has led establishment of hospitals and orphanages, social services, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Many humanitarian aid and aid organizations were established by Christians obeying God's call to participate in his work of healing and redemption. So, for example, while the Red Cross is not affiliated with any religious movement, the original founders of the Red Cross were Christians who were deeply committed to caring for others who are suffering in war-torn areas. For example, one of the co-founders, Jean-Henri Dunant, was a recipient of the very first Nobel Peace Prize in 1901, and he was a deeply religious Christian. If you go back and study the history of um, such movements as 
nursing, the abolitionary movement, the civil rights movement, you will find thought leaders motivated by their faith in God. And you can't ignore the impact of religion on art, on music, architecture, literature, theater, universities, and science. Those who have not studied history think that religion has been an impediment to science, but many prominent scientists were devout Christians. Their scientific observations and investigations were not inconsistent with their faith, but were motivated by their faith. And here are just a few. Um, As examples, Louis Pasteur, who discovered the principles of vaccination and microbial fermentation and pasteurization so we can have cheese, right? And Georges Lemaitre, who discovered that the universe is expanding, and he actually introduced the Big Bang Theory. He was a Catholic priest. Isaac Newton, we know him. He discovered the law of universal, universal gravitation, invented calculus, and built the first reflecting telescope. Mary Anning, uh, it was interesting learning about her. She discovered the first complete specimen of a plesiosaur um, and did a lot of work for, for dinosaur um, study. There's J.J. Thompson, who prayed and read his Bible every day, and he discovered the electron, and he invented the mass spectrometer, receiving the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1906. And just 31 years later, his son, George, won the Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering that electrons can behave like waves. It's kind of funny. The father discovered that electrons are particles, and then the son discovered that electrons can also be waves. 1951, Ernest Walton won the Nobel Prize in Physics with his colleague John Cockcroft for being the first to split the atom, confirming Einstein's theory that E does equal mc squared. Walton said that science was a way of knowing more about God. Francis Collins, who actually just passed away last year, was a physician geneticist who discovered the genes associated with cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, and was the leader of the Human Genome Project. He was also the director for the National Institute of Health in the U.S. from 2009 to 2021. He wrote a number of books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. So another book that you can uh, add to your reading list. Others attribute belief in God for causing violence and oppression. And while it's true that religious people and groups in history and around the world today have definitely done a lot of harm in the name of religion, we cannot dismiss all of religion and all religious people then. English philosopher and writer Sir Roger Vernon Scruton said in Soul of the World, G.K. Chesterton once said that to criticize religion because it leads people to kill each other is like criticizing love because it has the same effect. All the best things we have when abused will cause bad things to happen. And I really like that analogy, right? That powerful things and ideas are always going to be abused by some people and it's going to have harmful effects, but you can't then throw out um, the entire thought and movement. Belief in God has provided communities that have made a difference not only for societies as a whole, but for individuals. God matters. That's why when we see something beautiful, we experience wonder. Now, Peter kindly gave me permission to share this photo that he took last Saturday. Right after church service, Peter saw that there was a solar, solar storm 
happening in the clouds. Hence, he knew that if he drove down to Mornington Peninsula, he might be able to capture it. So he did. This is what he did last Saturday. You saw Peter rush off after service because he was like, I'm going to go get this photo, right? And he got there just in time to capture this incredible shot. I'm sure it was even more amazing in person to be there and, and witness this. When you stand before the curiosity of nature, where does that feeling of awe come from? Could it be because it says in Psalm 19 verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands? While Peter was experiencing the joy and wonder of capturing that aurora, at the exact same moment I was experiencing joy and wonder meeting Florin and Crystal's little girl for the first time. She is a little miracle child. Against many odds, she's here. And she is perfect. It's amazing that not too long ago she did not exist. And now, here she is. And her existence is so much more than mere atoms. She matters because God matters. Our faith is not blind. It is informed by the world around us and the yearnings within us. The Bible records the existential crisis of King Solomon, who had everything. He had wealth, he had prestige, he had multiple beautiful and capable wives, many healthy and talented children, grand palaces, exquisite food, the finest music and entertainment at his fingertips. His kingdom was at peace and flourishing, and yet he found it all meaningless. He wasn't happy. And in his stream of consciousness that becomes the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, he says something profound. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he says, He, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And I think this captures so well the struggle that we feel. That on the one hand, we, we do feel wonder. We long for meaning and purpose. We intrinsically believe that human life is precious. So we have that because he has put eternity in our hearts. But on the other hand, we can't understand God fully. And so it requires faith to believe that he exists and that he is who he says he is. Could it be that in our pursuit of truth, we encounter a God who has been here for us all along? Could it be that as we keep asking the why questions, and that as we keep realizing that these questions matter, in our collective questioning, searching, and discovering, that we get to experience communion, not just with God, but with one another. I want to challenge us and invite all of us not to just cruise through a life being busy with the daily chores and just the pursuit of, of, of life and, and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I want us to actually ponder and, 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 and wrestle with the big questions and to realize that those questions have to be answered in order for us to truly discover what it is that hearts long for. 
I pray that as we go through this process as individuals and together as a community, that we will experience the joy and the peace of knowing God for himself. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for asking why but not really searching for answers. Forgive us for not really knowing or caring enough to to be genuine in our search. I pray, Lord, that as we embark on this journey of not only asking for ourselves but also asking as a community that we would come to experience you, that even if we cannot understand you fully, that the worldview that you give to us is enough to give us clarity of, of purpose and meaning and morality and a guidebook of how you want us to live. I pray that as a result, we would find direction for our lives and for our church, for our community. And that, Father God, with that direction, following your will, that we would be able to be satisfied, that we would be able to experience that peace that passes all understanding. I pray in your son's name. Amen.